Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. On this week's New Statesman podcast, we talk about Labour splits. And we talk about Liam Neeson's uh, slightly controversial comments. And we talk about Brexit. Of course we talk about Brexit. Stephen, the Labour Party. Still exists. Good. I'm really excited to hear that. Uh, What the old lad's been up to. You've written your column this week about a potential Labour split, which you wrote about for us last summer. Mm -hmm with a sort of sense of inevitability that it would be a case of when, not if. But that does seem to be the still the kind of rationale we ended up with there was that there would be a wait, people would wait for Brexit. Either kind of whatever it was seen as being kind of Labour betrayal as a kind of cases belli or whether or not you get Brexit over and done with and then you finished your policy influence and then, you know, you can spring out. So where where are we now? Well, so I, I'm basically going to do like the Russian dolls of considering a split. There's like, right. so let's start with all Labour MPs. Most Labour MPs do not want to leave the Labour Party for reasons of, of you know, kind of emotional commitment to, to, the, to the party. tribalism, uh, friendships. Yeah, then yeah, you eliminate ideological. all of the ones who agree with Jeremy Corbyn on, on economic policy. But, you know, you're kind of your soft Corbyn sceptics, which makes up about 100 people in the PLP. So you can basically eliminate from the off about, 150 Labour MPs, right? So that's Russian so dollar one. So we're like one. 50 Corbyn loyalists or people who are aligned with him in well, so there strongly. Is, there are then... kind of 13 pure Corbynites, right? right Either okay. people who will sign letters saying that... Venezuela Venez- is great. Then, yeah, then, yeah, then the intervention in Venezuela is, is a US-backed coup. Any sort of letter of that kind where you kind of go... Well, here's an issue which, like, the average Labour MP does not... Like, the average Labour MP does not care about foreign policy. They're, like, basically against war. Four nice things. Four, like, right. And they are mostly of the kind of, like... Yeah, because this thing... Because, obviously, the average Labour MP worked in a some form of public sector provision, a lot of them will basically go, oh, on foreign policy, I defer to someone who they know they agree with ideologically on lots of other things, mm-hmm. and they basically just trust them that person's judgment is right. Okay, so 13 pure Corbynites, including Corbyn himself, McDonnell, Abbott, Chris Williamson on economic and foreign policy, yeah. Laura Pidcock. Laura Pidcock, Dan Carden. Uh, Dan Carden used to work Long. for a Unite and is now Liverpool MP. Yeah. So much sort of fancied young buck, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Rebecca Long-Bailey. Who's um, number two to John McDonnell still? Was or? number two I'm to John McDonnell, is now Shadow Business Secretary. Yeah. But yeah, so obviously like we can just eliminate so that's, that. that's strong Corbyn, whatever it was, 
positive plus ultra, then your next group out is people who kind of can live with him. Yeah, so mostly there'd be people who'd, who'd kind of go, I don't understand why he's going on about Venezuela, I don't care, but I like the economic policy, or I'm really excited by Long Bailey stuff on high streets, or, you know, so some variant thereof. Give me an example of, of MPs from that block. So I guess that's where you would group people like Andy Slaughter. Transport. Uh, he was, but he had to resign to vote against the whip uh, yes. on the EEA or something. You know, people like I forgot his name on the news quiz once. So Daniel Zeichner. Right. Uh, MP for Cambridge. MP for Cambridge. I mean, basically, anyone... Daniel Zeichner is a bad example. I rose from the illustrative thing I'm going to say because he wasn't an MP then. But anyone who, when Ed Miliband was on in trouble, you would have expected to see on TV going... Yeah, he's all right. No, he's good. The policy direction is great. We don't need to have a European referendum. We don't need to tack to this way or tack to that way. Okay, if you're going to be cruel, you're- you'd say kind of lobby fodder. People who are just generally pretty no, chill. No, no, because there are loads of people in all of these groups who I would describe as lobby fodder. Okay, right. I would describe being lobby fodder as a, a judgment about someone's talent rather than about their individual okay. politics, right? right? So like, but so they're basically you're kind of your soft left. Right. Again, so you can eliminate them from a, you can mostly eliminate them from a list of would-be splitters. Then you essentially have, yeah, kind of people who are opposed to Corbyn's economic policy. They're opposed to his foreign policy, and they are opposed to his Brexit policy. So I'm going to put people like Stella Creasy, Jess Phillips in that group. Yeah, you could basically put like that that type of uh, of MP in in that group. But they're not splitting. They are not the people who, when you speak to MPs, they're not the names who regularly come up. They're people who are are not considering a a split. And then you have kind of like the kind of indices of risk. Yeah, if you're doing an algorithm to identify Labour MPs who might split, you'd basically be the ones who, whenever there's an anti-Semitism row, would say, I don't believe and he is an anti-Semite. And the ones who would go, yeah, I think he probably is. And basically, if you... Privately. Yeah. If you put all of those things together, you mostly have a list of people who are, you know, on the kind of at-risk list, as it were. So your column identifies six names that are kind of normally talked about when this subject comes up, which has kind of winnowed it down, really. I mean, I guess some of the people have dropped off by the fact that Frank Field has already gone and is now sitting as an independent... Well, also, like, Frank Field's a bit of a... He's a law unto himself. He's yeah. very much the male Kate Hoey, some might say. So Gavin Shuker, MP for Luton. We've got Chukra Muna, big into a big anti-Brexit campaign, has been a consistent critic of the leadership from the start. Mike Gapes, who has been a very big Twitter warrior. Ilford North, right? Ilford South. Ilford South. But interestingly enough, Wes Streeting, who is another incredibly consistent Corbyn critic, and the other Ilford MP, not mentioned in this group. Yeah, so Wes, Wes Streeting is very much someone who has, who's someone who in private, you know, whenever someone talks about a split, is, you know, so someone who is more pro-split but is not one of the named six, was very uh, bruised recently, it, emotionally, because they felt that Wes had been very sharply like, it's a bad idea, it would never work, you'll lose your seat, you'll create a Tory government, you will... He's sort it, of not wrong though, is he? But I mean, but it is for some people, yeah. like you say, and, and you say this in a column, like it comes a moral imperative, and that brings me on to Luciana Berger, MP for Liverpool Wavertree, who has been a consistent critic of the leadership on its handling of anti-Semitism, not least influenced by the fact that she has had death threats herself. There have been people in prison, right-wing nutters, for threats against her. She has needed security to kind of go to stuff. So that's another one. Who are my final two? The final two, Chris Leslie, who I assume for our podcast listeners requires no introduction, formerly worked for Gordon Brown, kind of... Former Shadow Chancellor. Does it count if you held that job on... I love Harriet Harman, but does it count? Wow. 
savage, but um, okay, fair like, enough. But couldn't be more form- anti-Corbyn if he was wearing a big hat saying, I hate yeah. Corbyn. Uh, yeah. And then finally... Angela Smith, who is also entitled to the SF, because of course the, the other like at-risk indices, if, if you were kind of doing a kind of like typology of, well, what, what are the things that you would expect to be an indication of someone considering a split, is one of the people who is A, pro-European, but is also sufficiently pro-European that she doesn't mind saying, I want to have a do-over, despite the fact that her constituency voted very heavily to leave. Can you help me by telling me how to pronounce her constituency? Because I've never heard it out loud, and I always read it as penis town. I believe it's Penistone and Stockbridge, or at least that's how... I realise I, I usually, with constituencies from that part of the world, wait until Lindsay Hoyle, the deputy speaker, is in the chair to get, like, the kind of blue tick of, OK, that's definitely oh, how that's you pronounce it. But she was the one who was trying to intervene on Corbyn in his speech last week about Brexit, basically. She was going to ask him whether or not he supported a second referendum, and he wouldn't give way to her. And the Tories were well loving it, and Julian Smith, the Tory whip, was holding up a, like, a sign that said answer the question or let her speak. Oh, he was saying she wants to ask about a second referendum. And Nadine Doris then was like, oh, you won't take any questions from women on your side. Like, so side, the late convert to feminism, so Nadine Doris. Sidebar, one of the things I think is really fascinating, but also actually quite troubling, is this, I know we've talked about it before, like the rise of the like woke right. <laughs> no, the reason why Jeremy Corbyn did not want to take that question is not because she's, she's a woman. A woman. Mm. It's because she, he knew he was going to ask a question about a second vote. He doesn't want to have to answer questions about a second vote because, you know, yeah, he, he doesn't think fast on his feet will do well in the chamber. It's an electorally painful issue for him either way. It's an ideologically painful issue for him as well. Why on earth if you were... Like, it's one of those things where just like, if you were Corbyn, you would never do it. But I think it's really interesting the way that the British right has become so comfortable with... Um, with donning that kind of like, oh, this is actually because of this terrible motive. Or, I mean, do you remember when um, Emma Dent Code had that really unpleasant series of blog posts about Sean Bailey? And then Kemi Badnock was just like, ah, but this stick figure she's drawn, like attached to a tree or something, maybe it's a black person hanging from a tree. And it's just like, it's not though, is it? Like, it's just like, how have you managed to take, like, quite unpleasant blog posts and make them semi-sympathetic? And the thing I find... But really... they've been doing this for a really long time. Yeah. I was reading back the uh, 1975 Hansard for mm. a bill that uh, Maureen Cocoon put up called the Balance of the Sexes Bill, which would have mandated that every, like, trade board in mm. Britain had a, had a gender split, right? Mm. Which there is an intervention from a Tory called Carol, and probably a man called Carol, who says, yeah, I don't think you should be giving us any lectures on feminism because actually we've got a woman leader come on down and it's just I was just like oh wow they were doing that even then and now they still love doing that now being like uh guys who's the most feminist I think we find it's the party with the woman leader but I think the thing is although I think that's a vacuous argument against having gender balance on a trade board it is at least an argument which all of the moving parts hold together and which <laughs> many people who advance it sincerely believe whereas no one sincerely believes and that then the reason why Jeremy Corbyn said that is because he, he hates women he hates women yeah and I think it is corrosive that not only are people willing to say it but there is no there's no sanction within the tribe right are you gonna start talking about Brandon Lewis and the dick pic now I I mean I guess I could move on no I guess I could move on to Brandon Lewis and the dick pic that was sort of the same thing right where you everybody else in the entire Tory party seems to have just taken a collective really deep breath and you could see them not piling in behind him they're like nope Brandon this one is all on you I think the other thing is the the dick pic row so for those of you who were lucky enough not to follow this the Labour PPC and former MP for 
Northampton North from 97 to 2010, who is the candidate again in for the whenever the next election will be. Uh, for both of these years' elections. Um, her account was hacked and she liked a picture of a erect penis. Now, I mean, there are a couple of elements to this. I mean, and, and so, and, and Brandon Lewis then asked why Jeremy Corbyn had not commented on it and called on her to resign. <laughs> I struggle to imagine what Jeremy Corbyn's comment would have been. Like, I abhor... You think that's big? <laughs> you ain't seen what I'm packing. I abhor penises, all types of penises. I mean, like, well, I mean, there are several problems. Of course, the first is that she didn't do it uh, on purpose. But, of course, the second bigger one is, like, unless Sally Keeble is, you know, an anti-porn the, activist... Well, or, she has exactly come out strongly against penises um, previously in the past. Yeah, like, ultimately, like, you know, like, why is it, you know, parking the... the the argument about about the merits or dismerits of porn for a moment unless she is a hypocrite on the issue of porn why is that any more problematic than if she's like like to tweet going you know check out the the blue pan hotel best steak in northampton right i thought there was something i was an additional bit that i when i read your blog post that i thought which was actually if it had been violent porn or mis- very misogynistic porn, i would have felt differently about it but it was i actually have to say i missed seeing the penis so i can't appraise its merits or dismerits but it did was as far as i see just literally a picture of i mean penis. having having seen the member the member it was very. I mean, it was large, very tastefully done. <laughs> but you know, it was it was a very vanilla. Right. You know, it was you know, like it was it was a penis basically, right? right. It could have been from a medical textbook, right? It's just it's it was not in a context that one would find particularly offensive, apart from its um, visibility. So I actually thought the dick pic row was in one respect heartening, which was that the Conservative Party did not row behind it. And one <laughs> of the things I do increasingly worry about is that we have collectively just lost any sense of like. When is the point when I when the partisan filter needs to come off and we're not going to just defend stupid and, and entirely illegitimate arguments? Basically, Brandon Lewis, when she should resign, and everyone else involved was just like, oh, <clears throat> uh, so uh, watch the football yesterday? But, so at least that does show that there is a limit of silliness where people will just go, do you know what? No, I'm I'm not getting involved in that. But yeah, that clearly was not there with the whole he's not taking a question about a second referendum because he's a sexist issue. But to sort of return to the to the meat of the podcast, which is the the looming prospect of a, a Labour split, what keeps people you know in the six and people who are sympathetic to the six within the Labour Party is one, of course, the people who just think it's a bad idea and it it wouldn't work and don't accept the argument of like, well, I don't care if I think it's a bad idea. The first clause of this party is I believe that we're fighting to make this guy prime minister. And if I can't look myself in the eye and say, yeah, he should be, then I can't remain as an MP. But the, the reason why we are now fairly near to the kind of moment of truth is that the argument people have for why you stay in is that there is a block of 250 odd MPs. You may be able to buy staying within that party to to move its Brexit position to get a softer Brexit or no Brexit at all. And therefore you should stay in it. Counterpoint until... to this, you know, is the leadership or even people vaguely allied to the leadership or sympathetic to the leadership listening to Chris Leslie on this issue? Like, has he now made himself so much separated off from them because they could still vote with the Labour Party I don't know I think that's an interesting point like to me the moral question is is I, I totally respect that anybody who says actually I think he's gone too far and I can't mm. advocate for him to be party leader or indeed prime minister I think that's a perfectly legitimate argument I think the one about moving the Brexit argument I worry it's a bit like oh we should definitely stop Brexit but I won't back the Cooper amendment like I worry it's a bit like 
we should definitely split. However, the time is not yet right for our reasons. And I wonder whether or not the time will ever be right. Yeah, I mean, that is the open question. So, I mean, I, I think that there's this really interesting generational split in the in the Labour leadership, which I, I will have blogged about by the time this podcast arrives in people's podcasts. I podcast. will have blogged about it. It's like a threat. Um, which is the... And although this isn't a hard and fast rule, basically, if you speak to someone who is a kind of you know, a, Cor- a well-informed Corbynite, you know, Corbynite loyalist or ally or minister who is uh, over the age of 50, they will often go, well, do you still think there'll be a split? And they're quite worried about it mm. because of the kind of ancestral SDP and what happened in 1983. Mm. If you talk to someone under the age of 50 who's an MP, senior staffer, etc., etc., they're mostly a bit like, oh, yeah, are they really going to have one of those? What votes would it get? You know, they're, they're much yeah, more... See a smelly later. Now, I, as it happens, think that the under-50s, and again, not all under-50s not all under-50s mm-hmm. in the Corbyn Project feel that, yeah, there are... there. But I think broadly the under-50s are right. And then if you look at the type of votes that they would appeal to, it's not something which would, would, actually, da- would actually change the outcome of the next election. But because there are enough people in the kind of well, we're worried in this Wood group, the fact that everyone knows that some people who want to leave the Labour Party want to be able to go, see, look, the Labour Party has blocked Brexit, hardened Brexit, Mm. you know, done something about Brexit. Mm. It does slightly mean, because one of the reasons why Labour politics as a whole is where it is on Brexit, is because there are no longer any MPs who can say with a straight face, but look, the Lib Dems are like right behind me, therefore you've got to listen to me on Brexit. The only electoral pressure is people who go, remain with this constituency? So their presence as people who people know are going to want to use Brexit as a reason to walk out, I think does have a slight effect on where Labour's Brexit position is. However, I think you are also right that there's definitely a strong element of, I will leave tomorrow. It's kind of like kids on the high diving board, right? All sort of kind of going, no, you jump, no, you jump. And my final question to you is, if they did break away as a new party, what would you like them to be called? Because I think it was a news she pointed out that all the new parties so far have sounded like apprentice teams. They're all like, advance, renew, renew, um, (laughs) unite. Um, for change I thought so I mean I haven't really thought about it not least because inevitably for it to work it will have some kind of weird like name like the alliance or the combination I'd like if it was just a symbol like when Prince just went to a symbol yeah that'd be quite cool so I'm going to slightly cheat and do another thing because the other really interesting subplot in all of this is because the Labour Party has been sufficiently unbothered by the need to like be very strong on the sexual harassment stuff it did not do what it did with expenses which is give the nec the powers of a star chamber and go well we're going to do this on the balance of probabilities mm. so you had people losing their right to stand under the expenses scandal even before they had gone through the uh, the legal process of the court because the labor party has not done that they have allowed two people who have been under investigation to basically go, well, I'm quitting because I think that you're a terrible person. So John Woodcock and, and Kelvin Hopkins. Well, so Kelvin Hopkins has stayed in because Kelvin Hopkins is a, a Corbynite loyalist, so he doesn't have the option of turning around and going, I'm mm. shocked, shocked to learn that you want to overturn the British economic model. But Ivan Lewis and John Woodcock have mm. both done so. They both strongly protest their innocence. But it is a question that does prey on the minds of some people who talk about the, the splits, and they go, the only way it works is if you can with the number of splitters and the Lib Dems get to a point where you have more than 35 MPs, more than the SNP, become the third party, have speaking rights of PMQs, have access to certain short money. That's the only way that you become viable. But how can you say you are a new shiny force if you allow people who still have who questions, still have hanging, questions over hanging over them, them about yeah. unresolved investigations into sexual harassment? 
Right, and that's independent of the rightness or wrongness of those accusations. It's just a kind of facet of the kind of like who you know. Are you joining people who look like they've been pushed out rather than people who uh, have managed to make? Which it again look- was part of what was damaging for the SDP. You had the gang of four who had very principled reasons to leave. You also had people like Michael O'Halloran, the man whose uh, defenestration is why Corbyn became the Labour MP for Islington North in 1983, who was simply lazy. And the the SDP never really, I think, recovered. Part of its problem was that it had a number of ex-Labour MPs who just should not have been MPs ever. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to the concept of Labour splits if we're not too busy talking about Brexit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now for a segment we like to call... You ask us. The question this week is, is Liam Neeson racist? And is that a useful thing to call him? So background, he gave an interview to promote his latest film, which is never one of those films where he growls into a phone going, you'll pay for this. Saying that a friend of his was raped by a man who was black and he then spent a week after the like after that happening, basically roaming the streets looking for any black person to attack, right? And then it was, and as I understand it, it was told as a kind of, revenge is a really poisonous emotion but the reaction has not been that there's been a lot of people going wow this just shows how racist Liam Neeson is and I think that was I was baffled by this because to me that was the point of his anecdote which was that this was a thing that happened and was a self-critical thing that he was offering it up as not as being a bad thing well yeah so so I thought the initial report some of the reporting of the initial interview which kind of presented it as a kind of like here's a terrible thing that happened to a, a friend of Liam Neeson which obviously was a terrible thing that happened to a friend of Liam Neeson rather than Liam Neeson shows that, like... Liam Neeson talks honestly about about the the way that we all other entire groups and are prone to, you know, media, you know, conceptions of kind of group blame, right? Yeah, but then, then there's also been this kind of, like, weird shadow debate of, like, you know, oh, actually, it was quite brave of him to say so, which, I mean, so I basically would dispute all three of those pillars, right? It's not brave when you're an incredibly bankable star who has already earned enough to, you know, like, never work again... It is, however, very useful and part of the kind of, like, my increasing weariness of that I feel that whenever I say, hey, here's an out, here's something which, you know, like, so obviously the er example, the hostile environment policy, you know, whenever you go, hey, here's something which has, you know, racist consequences or indeed Labour's anti-Semitism problem, where people suddenly start going, oh, but Theresa May is so nice to, like, ethnic minorities who work for, oh, well... Jeremy Corbyn is, is a nice guy. He, she loves he the Ottolenghi cookbook. Like, it's one of those things where it's just like... It's the idea that someone's got to be kind of a cackling villain to ever have done anything racist, I yeah. think is the point, isn't it? That it's like racism is done by a category of people who are racists. Yeah. Which I think is kind of weirdly unhelpful rather than going, these are structures that we all participate in. Because actually that also gives you a much better framework for in understanding intra-ethnic minority racism, right? Rather than it being kind of 
white people do racism, no one else does. You kind of have a framework then to talk about, you know, anti-blackness, yeah. for example, within Asian communities. Yeah, like this thing is, is, is one of those things where I think in general it's not helpful that people... It basically feels like whenever one says, you know, so I wrote a piece about racist algorithms after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, as everyone who has studied algorithms mm. for any length of time... Yeah, algorithms can be racist, and it's a you know it's an essential uh, issue as we move towards a world in which these processes govern more and more bits of our lives. Yeah, so I wrote a piece going, of course she's right. One of the positives of of an algorithm is if it produces a yeah, if a workplace you know hires you know only white people, it's very hard to go. Hey, do you think maybe your hiring decisions are racist? Because mm. people immediately go, "But I'm a lovely person." The joy of an algorithm is if it produces out, provided it is open source, which is again one of the really big public yeah. policy battles. You can critique it without having to, without people doing this kind of "I'm lovely." So I thought it was actually a very good thing that Liam Neeson has said, and we now have a. So I do agree with John Barnes, even though I wouldn't necessarily have said it in the way he did. That it is positive that we now have a prominent example of a very famous person going, I thought these utterly mad, utterly racist things. Yeah, now you can go whenever someone says, but what, do we really all have these these views that have been embedded in us by the culture? Go, yeah, of course. Look at Liam Neeson. Spent a whole week fantasising about beating up black people. Like... The thing right. I find really unhelpful about the reaction to it is and is that I think it will discourage people from honestly discussing the subject again because yeah. if you get that label put onto you rather than accepting that you are a person with a panoply of experiences and thoughts and those can change over time right then if you get that label put onto you then why would anyone ever admit to it ever again and I think there's a there's a great line in a, a blog post about the kind of it was about I'm trying to remember exactly what it's about but it's basically says about people who don't want their interest is not so much in oppression being reduced as saying that they have no complicity with it right and that's a really important thing when you're discussing social justice stuff is do you want to reduce the amount of something in the world or do you want to kind of personally keep your hands kind of clean with it and actually if you want to reduce racism we probably need to talk about the ways in which we're all racist and it's a systemic structure that everybody participates in to some degree or other rather which i think comes back to the corbyn thing right mm. is that jeremy corbyn's conception of himself is a lifelong anti-racism campaigner and he just cannot square that with the idea that he might have this blind spot on anti-semitism because that's not who he is rather than those two things being entirely possible to, to coexist. And that doesn't make him a bad person any more than Liam Neeson is a, a bad person for having had this view at one time and not having it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think... So I think the positive thing is actually, like, although some people are very angry about it on Twitter, and although obviously snap polls, blah, blah, take them with a you know pinch of salt, you know, Sky have done a snap poll showing that most people are like, I'm glad and he's come out and said this. I think in general, people are, as a whole, much more forgiving than they appear to be on Twitter in particular. Although it does come back to our, our regular theme, I realise, of 2018-19, which is that Facebook should be broken up. Because you, know, you, you do, of course, have this problem of people being encouraged to like serve their silos. There's some god-awful contrarian take by Brendan O'Neill on mm. the issue already, etc., etc. That's think the problem. Is the, the attention economy rewards you reporting that as Liam Neeson, I wanted to beat up a black guy. So everyone goes, how terrible! And then, you know, in the same way that that ridiculous situation with those kids and the Native American guy, you just don't get the nuance because everything is filtered through the partisan. And then there's the inevitably, like you say, the Brendan O'Neill is the partisan backlash. So the thing is, I'm actually quite optimistic about society's willingness, yeah, people's willingness to understand this idea that they can 
believe things because of how they've been brought up and the culture they've imbibed and this doesn't make them bad people it just means they need to change but i am deeply pessimistic about the technological and economic imperatives placed on media organizations to actively um hold back that progress and and in many ways flip it into reverse that was a nice optimistic note to end on And now I'm joined by Gitu Sidhu Rob, who is CEO of Nosh Detox, and also is come to talk to us about the concept of a people's vote. Now, I am on record as being very sceptical of a people's vote. I didn't particularly enjoy the 2016 referendum. I'm not sure I would enjoy a 2019 one either. But but convince me. Tell me tell me why I should back one. Well, I have to say I didn't enjoy the 2016 one either. It must be said it completely didn't do what I expected to do. And I think we didn't. Although I have to say, I think that everything has consequences. And the result of that has taught us so much more about politics as a nation and as as, as people that it, it did have finally, I think, good consequences. The thing with this is, and the reason why I'm here today is because I'm an entrepreneur. I run my business. I am also a mother and I'm also a woman. And we we have found during this Brexit process that women just have not had a lot of a voice because the prime minister is so visibly female. It almost feels like that ticked that box and then the rest of us should all kind of go on with what we were doing. In the Brexit delegation, I think there was one whole woman that came from, from negotiating from, from Britain, one entire woman. The entire exit department is, is less than 40%. It's 30-something percent female. It is a very male-led debate. Now, in theory, we should be used to this because life tends to be like that. And in reality, it's actually turned out to be a very, very painful exercise. Women entrepreneurs function differently to male entrepreneurs. We set up businesses for different reasons. That's something that I care about a great deal, and I mentor a lot of women. So I, I, I'd like Give me to, an example of that. I'd like to speak in this space for a couple of minutes if I could, because I just don't find we talk about it very much. So firstly, women will set up businesses out of necessity, not opportunity. But we are one of the fastest growing groups of people that are becoming self-employed. Women, older women and younger women, but generally older women. So we don't set up businesses to make money, which is what men do. We actually set it up out of necessity because we do want to make money, but this is the only way we can see to make it. Our businesses are highly dependent on working out of home and on childcare. Women tend to traditionally raise much less money than men do in order to set up their businesses. We're much more cautious about growth. And we tend to we tend to hire based on talent as opposed to nationality. So those are very specific things that women entrepreneurs do. Male entrepreneurs actually do almost the opposite of that. We aren't as risk averse as, as you would imagine. We just tend to be more cautious. Now, the reason for this, and my own story if you forgive me, is actually a perfect mm. example of this, that I am a corporate lawyer by, by profession and I ended up with three small kids under the age of seven. So I set up a business because one of them was really, really, really ill. He was anaphylactic and there was just no way for me to stay at work. So what I did was find a way to make money while I stayed at home. It then became a necessity when I ended up on my own with three kids and I ended up thinking, well, what am I going to do? So I set up my business and my business from that day to this has paid all of our bills. So my business was not set up for immaculate, great, incredible growth and va-va-voom and get a venture capitalist. I couldn't afford that. I needed to make the bills and that's what I did and that's how I set up my business. So there is a big, dis and I'm not alone in this. Mm. Women just don't talk about it. So when you speak to a man, he'll say, why haven't you grown your business faster? And I'm like, um, it was doing its job. 
That's what it was there for. I, in, I envisaged it for this purpose and I was deeply successful at that purpose. But that ties into how women just don't stand up and speak for themselves and for what we need quite in the same way. So a people's vote for us, in the last YouGov poll in December, 64% of women said that if Theresa May's deal failed, they wanted a people's vote. Now, the reason for this is we need a platform upon which to speak. Women tend not to stand up and shout. We also tend not to get heard. And we're not part of the Brexit exit process at all. We really are not. We're a minority. So if we don't have a people's referendum, how will we be heard? So tell me how Brexit has affected your business. Oh, it was awful. It was really terrible. So we are, Nosh Detox is a health and wellness business. So we do home delivery of food and, and, and juice fast. And we were the first company in this country that set up in 2007. In 2012, 13, I, one of those days, we went into the supermarkets and we took raw juices into supermarkets. And what happened to us was that, and it was just more public, I think, but in 2016, when the vote came through, the pound dropped about 19%, if I remember correctly, and we were importing our juices from Europe. And it took me six weeks to run into hundreds and thousands of pounds of debt because suddenly I wasn't making any money anymore at what I was doing and I wasn't getting paid because I was in a supermarket so I had to wait till they paid me and the whole thing I, it nearly destroyed a business that had been up and running for a few years and I had to actually decide immediately what to do and what I chose to do I could either go and get more funding or stop and I literally pulled out of all the supermarkets on a dime literally overnight practically and went back to what we knew to do as a business I had to borrow money to pay wages and I honestly think if I hadn't been feeding the kids I'd have given up at that stage because it was so traumatic and so awful the other problem that we have with Brexit is over 80% of my employees are European they really are I import because health and wellness might one of my biggest suppliers is Germany I import from Germany now I and, and I'm building a new store in Fulham how I don't even know how to price anything I have no idea because everything I've done is a projection to say this is when it'll pay off no idea literally and that is flying by the seat of your pants in a deeply deeply uncomfortable way I still pay for my kids it's still my livelihood so this is the thing that I find really interesting always through the referendum campaign until now is that when you talk privately to people who run whether it's small and medium-sized enterprises or whether or not it's people in bigger businesses you know none of them think that Brexit is a good idea or that we're handling it particularly well but businesses have been so so reticent to come out and say yes. something why do you think that is it just a fear of just putting their heads above the parapet or a feeling that they're big businesses in the case that, that they you know they're hated what is it? I think it's a couple of things. Number one, the CBI has, has formed an approach and big business has kind of followed that approach. But which is what? Which is kind of, we will sort of tow government line as much as we're able until the last vote when he, they actually had to have a call with them because they were like, what are you people doing? But the thing is, we only talk to big businesses. Nobody talks to people like us. And if you talk to people like us, how many people are as honest as I'm willing to be? The thing is, small <laughs> I get rung up daily by somebody like Canal Plus rang me today and said, will you talk about the effect Brexit will have on you and how you are getting Brexit ready? I'm like, mate, I am a small business. My idea of Brexit ready is to get a bag and a gun and pray. I mean, <laughs> right. what do you want me to do to get Brexit ready? I was on TV with, is it um, Tim Martin from Weatherspoons who hmm. said, find another district to sell in. I do not have £250,000 spare to do that. But Weatherspoons does have that. So I am the kind of business that doesn't know how to get Brexit ready. 
I've literally got my fingers and my toes crossed and that's Brexit ready. You know, we're, we're literally dying under the weight of the absolute ignorance as to how this affects us and the apparent anonymity within which we live. We're not anonymous, we're dying. Mm. We're literally dying on our feet. My clients are leaving town. The gym I go to has lost a thousand people in the last year. I, I'm now sitting there, with, I, I, I export almost more now than I ever have done in my entire life. Not out of willingness, but because I have no choice. Half of my client base has gone off back to France because Macron's giving them a tax break. I'd love one, please. This is the thing I think is interesting, because I bet if you put some of that stuff to some of the Brexiteers, they'd start saying, well, you're a business for rich people, i.e. you're a business for not real people, not the kind of people who want, who want Brexit. Do you know what I mean? Like, there is... I find it's a really That's fascinating... because none of them detox. They really should. It would improve their outlook immensely. But it's a fascinating kind of contradiction within the, the pro-Brexit project, I think, is a lot of people who... Let's be honest with you, Jacob Rees-Mogg could afford to detox if he wanted to. Yeah, but he wouldn't, would he? But he, I think His he, wife would need it more. Well, I... I, I, I Not I, because I, she's I, unpleasant. She's a lovely woman. I mean, she's had seven kids or whatever it is. No, the thing that annoys six, me... So I think after six kids, I think anyone should be entitled to a bit of time off and some, really? some relaxation and The thing with juice. it is, don't call this Operation Fear. Mm. Don't, because it gives it a sarcastic unreal edge where you take away the reality of what is happening to me and what is happening to my children and you are affecting my everyday life I have spent I could cry honestly I've spent but then if I did we'd be called emotion and that wouldn't work either I have spent nearly 11 years building this business up this business has paid school fees for three children it has put, paid for a home it has paid for clothing it has paid for food I just want to keep doing that. It's not really asking a lot. As my government, their job is to support me in doing that, not to hinder, hamper, and completely hide me under a pile of horse manure, which is called Brexit. It's just unreasonable. Remain makes me richer. I don't know another way to put that. And I like being richer. Hmm. I'm not even saying rich, but richer. And the thing is, there is not one man in the Brexit campaign that's probably ever cared about their health or done detox. Or, so when I'm not relevant Well, Boris Johnson them. is now losing weight, so maybe he might be a, 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 might be a silver lining in all this, is that you oh, might be lovely, able to sell him some juice. what goes in your mouth really affects how you think, so maybe there's hope. But if, if anyone has been convinced by uh, listening to you, what should they do? What's the next step for, for supporting I think you? that, honestly, a people's vote really what it does we need to understand why we care so much keep stopping a stupid idea going through because it's so so important to be heard but a people's vote helps people that like like me and other women like me actually get a platform to speak it enables my children of which more have turned 18 in the last couple of years to get a platform to speak i need a platform where am i going to get that platform if you don't allow a people's vote that was gita city rob of women for a people's vote thank you thank you for having me You've been listening to New Statesman Podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not subscribe to the New Statesman? We have special offers on. You cannot fail to see them if you visit the website. And uh, then that will make everyone happy. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.